Welcome to The Rooster Crows, a podcast about life and death and everything in between. I'm Roberta Howie, here with my co-host, Stephen Milton. Christmas is just around the corner, and like millions around the world, we here at The Rooster Crows are getting ready for the holidays. It is time for caroling and nativity sets and getting presents wrapped up and sent to loved ones. It's also a time for student rebellion, roaming live animals, and our favorite Christian group that keeps popping up every holiday season, the Puritans. Stephen has been collecting these historical and biblical facts over the past many weeks about Christmas, and has been sharing them on our social media. Today, we'll take just a handful of them and share them here with you. Grab your hot cocoa and your Christmas sweater and settle in for some interesting facts that you can share at the next family gathering. Hello, Stephen. It is so great to have you back on as we co-host together this episode. We seem to do it twice a year, which is great, and I hope to keep doing it some more, but we're here for for Christmas. Yeah, and there's lots to talk about, um, as I think people have been finding out. Um, I've been doing a uh, sort of daily posting about Christmas symbols for the last few years. I've been putting them on social media as well as sending them out via email to our congregants. And they become really popular. Um, there, there are churches all over the country who read my posts every day and then share them and stuff. Um, and I've been surprised at just how much there is to know about Christmas. Like, uh, you know, you think Christmas is fairly straightforward, but it's got this really rich, long history, which influences why we do the stuff that we're doing. And of course, we're changing um, old Christmas traditions as we go. So it's, it's really interesting. I wanted to know if we could start with one that you told me like two weeks ago, and it's been on my mind since then for all of our folks that love Christmas vacation, Christmas break, you may be on it right now while watching or listening. And turns out that that just wasn't built into the school programming that you had students sometimes literally fight for that. And so do you want to tell me about the school riots with the disclaimer that the Rooster Crows podcast does not endorse violence or riots against teachers. This is not legal advice. Please don't use this. This is just fun historical facts. Okay, go. Okay. <clears throat> so one of the weird things is, you know, as, as you know, every Christmas kids get about two weeks off, right? That's just normal. And, you know, the date slides around a little bit, but usually by the 22nd or 23rd, the kids are off of school until the early new year. That was not always the case. In fact, Christmas itself didn't used to be celebrated much in many Protestant communities. This is a kind of weird thing. We think that, you know, what could be more Christian than Christmas? But in the 1600s, the mid-1600s, um, a group of Christian fundamentalists known as the Puritans won uh, control over Brit Britain's parliament. And the Puritans believed that um, there's no... There's nothing in the Bible that says that people should celebrate Christmas. You know, we have the Bible story of the shepherds coming by the stable to see the newborn Christ child. And of course, we have the Magi who came by as well. But to their minds, that didn't justify a big Christmas service and a Christmas mass and, and that kind of thing. So they said, no, we're not going to do that. We can only do that um, for Easter, but not for Christmas. So they literally outlawed Christmas. You know, all those Christmas movies you've ever heard, the animated specials, you know, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas. 
actually the government stole Christmas in the mid 1600s in in um, England. That's like a Hallmark movie. It, it, I love it. It's like Hallmark movie villain style, like Footloose, but for Christmas special. I, I love yeah. it. Yeah. And of course, people have been celebrating Christmas for a long time, so they didn't take well to this. And um, ministers were arrested for preaching on Christmas. Um, the watchmen who would go through the streets um, would actually discourage people some, from singing Christmas carols and stuff. What you did within your own house was your business, but there couldn't be a public celebration of Christmas. Now, the Puritans were only in charge of the British government for about 10 years or so. And so, and when they, when they stepped down or when they got kicked out, um, the Christmas rules relaxed, but the damage was done. In Protestant countries uh, that were indebted to the English in particular, um, Christmas just ceased to be a big deal. Um, and that meant that lots of stores stayed open at Christmas. Schools stayed open through Christmas. You went to school on Christmas Day in Boston until I think the 1870s. Um, Catholic countries were different on this, but the Protestant nations that were indebted to the English version of Protestantism, they took a very dim view of Christmas. And so Christmas was a just, it was sort of like Remembrance Day, you know? You, you know that it's happening, but you don't cancel school. It was like that. So people just worked through Christmas and they went to school through Christmas. But kids being kids wanted time off, right? They wanted time off. And so, um, Back then, uh, the public school system, as we understand it in like the 1600s and 1700s um, and into the early 1800s, didn't exist. Um, it was uh, in Ontario, for instance, we don't start getting public schools until I think the 1830s or 1840s. So most schools were one-room schoolhouses that uh, usually, you know, a teacher who was hired by the community ran and, you know, there'd be all sorts of grades in the same school. And what would happen around Christmas time in all sorts of communities all over the place in these Protestant areas was that the kids would decide to go on strike so they could get some days off around Christmas. And the strike often started around December 6th. And there was an actual structure to it. I'm sure the first one was improvised, but once it caught on, the way the rules of the game were you would barricade yourself in your one room schoolhouse closing the door, using nails and boards to lock the door. Um, and once you'd done that, you'd bring in three days worth of food, three days worth of drink, blankets, because of course it would be cold, it's December. And the game was you made demands and you refused to open the door until those demands were met. And the demands were usually, we want some Christmas vacation. Sometimes the demands were, we want some Christmas vacation or we want some Christmas presents and treats. That happened. These are kids after all. Um, and also because back then schoolmasters were allowed to beat their, um, beat their students, sometimes it would be, we would like to be beaten less. And, you know, which is kind of gross, but, you know, that's the way it was. Um, and so, you know, just like, you know, the Beastie Boys say you have to fight for your right to party. Well, you had to fight for your right to Christmas vacation. Now Newsies has a totally different meaning behind it, where you have all of these children in New York in the late 1800s who have newspaper strikes as newsboys across the city and across the state. And it turns out, like, they're just doing what they have with the skills, what they have. They've had practice doing this. And... Like, they're ready to go. But it, I think it's just something we take 
incredibly for granted where the idea of us being in a Christian raised society where we get Christmas Day off. That is like the one thing that keeps society upright at this moment. And that was a relatively recent development, all things considered. So that yeah, is, totally was. yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, so this is, uh, in the 18th century. So the 1700s, this was a fairly common thing. It wouldn't happen every year. It would happen from time to time because it was risky because the truth was that sometimes if your schoolmaster was, you know, not very nice, they would break the door down and they would come in and they would punish you for doing this and you wouldn't get your demands. You know, so just like adult strikes now is always a risk because you may not get your demands met. The same thing was true for these students, but they would get beaten if their demands weren't met and the schoolmaster broke through. So, you know, in some places it was a game where, you know, everybody thought it was kind of funny and yes, the schoolmaster would give in and other places it wasn't. So, and this went on until schools in England started getting charters, like formal rules for how they worked. And they built in Christmas vacations into the charter. Um, so the kids wouldn't have to do this every time. But I was going through some Ontario newspapers from the 19th century, and I came across a reference to it in Georgian Bay um, in, I think, 1880 or so. So it was still a thing which happened, because, you know, the school system was fairly young in, in Ontario at that point. So, yeah, yeah it, kids actually had to fight for the right to have Christmas vacations. Speaking of children, speaking of students, one of the most important people for Christmas is not our Lord and Savior born in a manger like 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, but of course Santa Claus, who comes and visits children across the world giving toys to good children and coal to naughty children. I think my aunt actually got a lump of coal when her sisters snuck that in her stocking when they were very young. It didn't go well, but that's that's okay. And it's a great thing to learn that St. Nicholas, that Santa Claus himself, was actually possibly a real person. And I'm wondering if you want to tell us a little bit about who he was. Yeah, sure. So St. Nicholas was definitely a real person. Uh, Nicholas was a bishop in uh, what is now Turkey um, back in the 4th century, so the 300s. And his, his tenure sort of coincides with Constantine coming to Christianity. And um, the reason we pay any attention to him at all at Christmas time is because of a legend about something he did as a young man before he became a bishop. And Nicholas was born to wealthy Christian parents who raised him in the faith. And there's, you know, a, a lot of what happens with Nicholas is both is a mixture of fact and legend. And one of the things which... Um, is said about him was that he was uh, he would fast as a child, like he refused to eat on I think Wednesdays and Fridays, which I think were the traditional fast days back then. Um, he could stand in his uh, wash basin from the time he was an infant, so he was a very upright young man. You know, um, <laughs> the qualities of the adult are often cast backwards onto the child in the way uh, Christian legends get written. But one story about him, like there's various stories about him working miracles as a bishop where, you know, he was able to calm storms at a distance and appear in visions to sailors who were in trouble. But there's one story about him which is connected to Christmas, which has no miracles in it at all. So it kind of suggests that it's based in fact. 
And the story goes that um, Nicholas's parents died, um, it sounds like from disease or something, leaving him a wealthy young Christian teenager. And he's decided to devote himself to serving God. So he's a very upright, um, uh, ethical person. And he hears that a local nobleman has fallen on hard times. And um, he has three daughters. And at that time, if you wanted your daughters to get married, they needed to have dowries, right? So the, the father of the bride brought a fair bit of cash to the table to make the transition over to uh, marrying into another family. Well, because his economic fortunes had tanked, um, this nobleman didn't have the money to marry off his daughters. So the word got out on the street that he was going to do the unthinkable and he was going to um, sell them into prostitution. And this horrified young Nicholas and he decided to help out. So under the cover of night, he uh, got a bag of gold and he walked past the nobleman's house and he threw the bag over, over um, the fence and into the nobleman's yard. And he did this three times, and each time he did it, the nobleman would find the bag of gold and go, aha, I can now afford to marry a daughter, right? So all three daughters got, to, got taken care of. Now, the ways this story is told is, sometimes the gold goes over the back fence. Other times the gold goes up into the chimney and down the chimney. And that's where the nobleman finds the gold. And other times it goes up through a window or the chimney and it ends up in somebody's stocking. So you can see the connections and you know, who knows if that's what really happened, but that's the way the story is told. Anyway, so the nobleman of course is extraordinarily um, appreciative of the fact that, you know, someone is solving his major problem, but he has no idea who it is. So after the second bag of gold has been thrown into the house, he decides to stay up and wait and see if he can actually catch the guy who has been throwing the gold. So he stays up night after night and Nicholas comes by and he throws in the gold. And this time the nobleman's awake. So he runs out into the alleyway and he chases Nicholas down. And he says, why, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much. But why haven't you, you know, why haven't you told, uh, why didn't you tell me who you are? And Nicholas just says, I don't want you to tell anybody that I did this, you know, not until I die, because, you know, Christian charity is supposed to be anonymous. And so that becomes the sort of root story for um, a lot of the Christmas gift giving, right? In Europe, Santa Claus, the person we think of as Santa Claus, looks a lot like a bishop, you know, bishop's crook, bishop's hat, the big red gown. Um, and, you know, uh, if you ask Dutch children who brings presents, they'll tell you it's St. Nicholas, like literally St. Nicholas. And when St. Nicholas comes to North America, um, in, uh, particularly in the United States, where there's this big melding pot of people um, who've got all sorts of different cultural traditions for Christmas, then St. Nicholas becomes shortened to Santa Claus um, and gets... There's a sort of cultural mashup where you get St. Nicholas and gifts and Norse gods and reindeer all sort of come together and it gets mixed up and it turns into this Santa Claus who in the beginning was truly like conceived of as a little elf. Like if you see old pictures of Santa Claus, he's about three feet high. In the uh, poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, right? He refers to Santa Claus as a little jolly elf, right? So... Santa Claus starts off as a kind of Nordic elf and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until he's the kind of Coca-Cola Santa Claus, who's this big burly guy. 
It, it makes far more sense to picture a little tiny elf going down the chimney than someone who is not just considered average size, but a considerably larger size going down that chimney. And we've all just said, it's magic, don't look at it too much. It makes sense if you don't think about it. And instead, like having him physically be smaller and say, no, he could actually fit. I, I love how all of these cultures and all of these countries put their own spin on this man who just represents amongst everything else that spirit of giving without worrying about receiving, about just giving gifts for the sake of giving gifts, not expecting, not demanding, not even wanting uh, reciprocation for it. And so you have cultures that bring in their own little mythology spins, they bring in their own little cultural uh notes whether it's like with reindeer or with whether he drives a sled or whether it's something else what he looks like changes over the years and across the countries and there's something really important about that taking someone who is purely about the spirit of giving making it slightly your own spin in your own culture and then unleashing that into the world and now we have many 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 a christmas ad out there with Santa and his spirit lives on in every single mall Santa out there as they go through the hardest season in a long minute. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and one of the one of the contributing factors to this is the spirit of Christmas. Um, we, you know, we we you know we have all these movies, right, about you know a character's grumpy and doesn't doesn't have the Christmas spirit, right? Um, and we see that as a kind of psychological quality, right? That you haven't, you know, given yourself over to your inner joviality, right? Hey, lighten up, you know, enjoy Christmas. Um, but back then, like before the 1850s or so, they really thought that there was a spirit who visited at Christmas. Like there was a true Christmas spirit, kind of like a Christmas angel, but it was a Christmas spirit who would take over a town and suddenly everybody's being more generous and jolly and happy. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, do you have the Christmas spirit, but do you feel the Christmas spirit? Because the Christmas spirit was objectively all around you. And so like in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, um, the ghost of Christmas present is the Christmas spirit because he's this big, jolly guy who's wrapped in laurel and stuff, and he sprinkles um, good cheer, like invisible bits of good cheer, onto poor people so that they will have a good Christmas. Um, and so Santa becomes the sort of avatar for that old idea of the Christmas spirit, because you can see Santa. You couldn't see the Christmas spirit, but you can see Santa, and Santa has all those qualities. He's... he's big and happy and you know ho, 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 all that laughter right that's the christmas spirit you know corporealized basically there, there's something i find really interesting about the idea that for so long the christmas spirit was considered like an external thing that it needed to arrive and hit you and then you could feel it and then you're you're good to go and now we've turned it into it's something internal that you need to foster yourself and so if you don't have yeah. christmas spirit that's that's something on your end you have to fix instead of, oh, well, we just need to wait for the magical Christmas spirit to do the yep. little Tinkerbell pixie dust on you. And that's that's okay, it'll get there. And instead now it's, what are you doing that to get yourself in the spirit? And I think, I'm just going to sit with that probably for another Christmas season on how we how we got there. It sounds like many steps involved to get there. 
It's, it's part of a general um, shift in uh, cultural sensibility. It's certainly not just about Christmas. Pretty much everything is like that. Um, uh, we have taken all sorts of things which used to be considered external and we've internalized them. We've made them psychological um, and it's just part of who we are. It's part of being an individual, right? Like we're not part of a collective as much as we're a series of individuals. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just something the West has done and it's not anybody's fault exactly, but it's certainly taken over. Speaking of uh, the idea of this myth becoming legend and the historical fact and like where the blurred lines are for this, I remember us talking very briefly last week about the connection between the different censuses and how we got like the different shepherds and how David was involved and how it got into the Luke story. And I'm wondering if you wanted to put those connections together because it's one of the most famous parts of the intro of this story is that David, uh, or not David, it's that Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem because King was uh, the emperor of Rome was holding a census and every man needed to be recorded. And so they went to Bethlehem where Joseph was from and there was no room at the inn. And that's why they're in a barn away from all their friends when the story kicks off. And it turns out that there's a reason behind that. It wasn't just the gospel writers looking around for a way for our main protagonist to get to a barn in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting because the census, of course, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, doesn't really make any sense. Um, Romans did have censuses back then. Sure they did, because they needed to know how many people they could tax, how much income could be squeezed out of any particular region. So the way you do that is you count all the households and you count their fields and you count their animals and then you get a sense of how much tax you can you can uh, charge them. But that only makes sense if you do it where the people are currently living, where their fields are, where their animals are, right? Whereas the census in uh, the Gospel of Luke is a census which requires every uh, man to in the entire empire to go back to his place of birth, even if he doesn't live there anymore. And that doesn't actually make any sense at all, and it's massively inconvenient, right? And you know, and people did move around back then, so it's it's not a census that makes a whole lot of sense from a practical point of view, even from a Roman perspective. But from a biblical point of view, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, that it makes sense. One is that one of the prophecies in Micah, Micah, um, it predicts that the Messiah will be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem, which is where David was from, King David. So that's one thing. So ideally, Luke, need, Luke and Matthew, who tell the birth stories of Jesus, need to get Jesus from Nazareth, where everybody knows he grew up, to Bethlehem for his birth. Okay, so how are you going to do that? you got to get them on the move. Now, it would have been fairly easy just to say that uh, Mary and Joseph decided to go back to Joseph's you know, um, place of birth for the birth of Jesus. It's not ideal, since Mary probably would have been lying in, uh, in her parents' house while she was pregnant, but you, know, you could have gotten away with it without mentioning a census. But instead, Luke makes this really big deal about a census. So why? In uh, First Chronicles, 
there's a, which is you know the um, one of the historical chapters in the Bible. There's this story about King David, which in features a census. King David is on the throne. He is, you know, he defeated Goliath. He's become the king of Israel. He's doing well. He's got lots of. He's got a big army. He's been winning battles, and he decides to ha have a census, <clears throat> and he decides to count all the men in. Um, his, his little empire, his Jewish empire, to try and figure out how many men are at fighting age so he can get a sense of how big an army he can raise should he need to go on another campaign. His um, religious uh, advisor of the time says, this is a terrible idea. You should not be doing this. God is the one who keeps winning these battles for us. It doesn't matter how many soldiers we have. But David doesn't listen. And David goes ahead and he counts everybody. And the spiritual advisor is correct. God gets upset. And God um, starts to uh, cause death and illness in the kingdom. And David realizes, uh-oh, I've screwed up. And um, God says, listen, I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to give you three choices for how you get punished for having done this arrogant thing of having a census. Uh, number one is that you can die at the hands of your enemies for three years. So, you know, God would remove God's protection from the neighboring warring tribes and they just have to fend for themselves. Number two was pestilence. And number three was God, God will do it on God's own. Oh, no, sorry. Number two was famine. Forgive me. Um, number three was God would do it on God's own, which would probably mean a, some sort of pestilence or plague. David opts for door number three because he figures God might relent, whereas his enemies will never relent, and a famine's not going to relent. So sure enough, an angel of death is sent and um, to Jerusalem and starts killing people through disease. And David sees it, and he sees this angel hovering over Jerusalem, and he says to God, Please stop. You know, my people didn't do anything wrong. It was myself and my household who decided to do the census. So just punish us. Don't punish them. And sure enough, God does relent. And God stops it and God says, okay, if you build an altar in somebody's threshing house uh, and make sacrifices to me, then we'll be square. And so that's what happens. So, in this story, a census is an arrogant, evil thing. It is an act where human beings think that they are in charge of the human beings in their kingdom, whereas in fact God is in charge of those human beings. God created them. So God can count them, but human beings shouldn't be counting them. Right? So Luke starts his gospel with the story of an evil emperor who is holding a census. A really inconvenient census, which forces everybody to go where they don't want to go, back to their birthplaces. Like, he starts with a an instance of the evil of power, of pagan power, where an emperor decides to inconvenience absolutely everybody, ordering them around so they can be counted, so they can be overtaxed. And... Luke knows that his readers are conversant with the history that's contained in the Bible. So he's counting on his readers going, wait a second, we know that King David got in trouble when he held a census. And now the story of the boy who will be born in King David's city, who will be known as the son of David, that guy is going to get born in the middle of a census? Oh, I see. Okay, so Luke is basically telling you right up front, 
The Messiah was born in a time of an evil empire where they held censuses. And we all know that those are a bad idea. And then there's one more twist in this story because King David saw the angel of death hovering over Jerusalem. King David says in the story, I am the shepherd of Israel. Blame me, don't blame my sheep. Luke takes that and he puts angels hovering over Bethlehem who shepherds see. And the angels sing these, this song of glory to God and peace on earth towards all people of goodwill. Right? So he's, Luke has basically said, you know that story about the evil angel hovering above the town ready to rain down death? When the Messiah comes, it'll be good angels hovering above the city of David, bringing news of peace and goodwill towards all people. This Messiah is going to turn the whole thing on its head. And that evil emperor who held the census, he's the one who's in danger. He is not the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace is being born in that stable. So if you read it that way, the story is actually extraordinarily powerful. And it's this really, really interesting editorial twist that um, Luke uses in just a few paragraphs to sort of set up the terms of the Messiah. The Messiah is up against an evil empire and we'll be doing things very differently than we expect. Which, like, the fact that the census part for at least many children is considered the boring part, no one really cares what a census is, why it's there. No one cares at that point when you were a child. And it turns out that it is one of the most important setups for that twist. It's the equivalent of, like, hearing a Shakespearean monologue entrance at, at the beginning of a story and hearing, oh yeah, this is going to be a Romeo and Juliet situation. Everybody's going to die. And I know that from that first paragraph that was alluding to something written centuries before I even arrived. And that it, it could be incredibly unimportant to a lot of people, but it sounds like to those who were there at the time that the Gospel of Luke was written for those who the intended audience was. It was a very important note of exactly why we're having this story, what's being told. It's especially for Luke. It's not just about the story of how Jesus arrived here, because frankly, many, many, many important people were born in the Bible from rather very boring means, and they still do amazing things. What was so special about this? And having Luke be able to say, actually, no, we are setting up something very important that the universe managed to align itself just for this and pay attention. And we're going to bold and underline it. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, you know, if you know that backstory, then it means that Luke is just in a few brushstrokes setting the scene. Once upon a time, there was an evil empire where the emperors didn't know that they were doing evil, but the people did. And in comes, in comes you know, uh, a family who see something miraculous which signals that the rules on earth have changed. I mean, it, it's a wonderful little story, particularly if you understand this backstory. And, you know, and that's the thing about reading the Bible is that it's such a pity that, you know, as biblical literacy goes down, these resonances get lost because it's like to explain a joke is not the same thing as to hear the joke spontaneously the first time and you get the references. And like, even if you're not someone that is Christian, even if you're not someone that follows the Bible or believes in the Bible, just the amount of Christian language and setups that we have in our society make understanding what 
it's in the Bible, the content of the Bible, just important to understand most of Western literature basically up to the early 1900s because there was an assumption that you at least learned the basics of it. And so if there's anyone who's an English major listening, just read it purely from a literary perspective. You don't have to buy into it, but you do need to know what, what's in it. And it's going to make a lot of the books make a lot more sense. One of the ways that we've done this in Sunday schools and in churches across the country is by teaching these children these stories through things like Christmas pageants. And we just had our Christmas pageant a short while ago. It was very different from the sort of Charlie Brown traditional Christmas pageant we might have. But if you are, if you've never seen a pageant, it's usually a bunch of children that come up to the front of the church and they're wearing costumes of the main people of the Christmas story. You have Mary, Joseph, usually there's a newborn playing baby Jesus, you got some shepherds, and they tell the story of that evening when Jesus was born, millennia or two ago. And that has not always been the case. It's not always been a bunch of eight-year-olds trying to emulate shepherds cowering in a field on, on stage. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's interesting. Even Christmas pageants have an interesting evolution. One of the clues to it is the word pageant, actually. The word pageant means um, a performance on the move. Um, and this tracks back to when the Christmas story was told on the move. Um, so about a thousand years ago, uh, you know, obviously at Christmas time, the monks and the, and the clerics would read the Christmas story. No big surprise. About a thousand years ago, they started doing it a little bit differently, where instead of just one person reading, say, the passage from the Gospel of Luke or the passage from Matthew, they would divvy up the parts. You know, so one person reads for the angels, one person reads for Joseph, you know, that kind of thing. And then um, St. Francis of Assisi in the 1200s decides that his illiterate peasants who don't understand Latin, so they can't understand anything that's going on in the church service. He wants them to understand the Christmas story. So he asks some farmers for some help, and one Christmas Eve, they put together a little scene outside of what the stable probably looked like. So, you know, an ox, a donkey, some chickens, some straw. And St. Francis holds a service outside in this stable area, showing everybody what it was like. And he explains in Italian what the, that, that night must have been like. And this is such a hit with the peasants that um, it uh, becomes a thing and other churches start doing it too. So it starts spreading across Europe and this becomes uh, known as a live nativity, right? And, and people still do this. The story of um, what happened that night though, isn't just about animals, it's also about people. So people started saying, okay, and this is a couple centuries later, let's actually reenact what happened in the whole Christmas story, you know, from the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary to all of the stuff in Bethlehem. Churches at that time, though, weren't theater spaces. That's just not what they did. They were sacred spaces for holding the mass. So, and also, if you wanted animals involved, they didn't want animals inside the cathedrals. So this was going to have to happen outside. And at that time, um, 
troops of actors would go from town to town doing performances, and they'd often do them on wagons, right? Because they had to travel from place to place. And if you remember Hamlet, for instance, there is a troop of actors who arrive in, in um, Elsinore, and they're going to put on a play, and Hamlet hires them to put on a play that he's written so he can try and figure out if his uncle killed his father. Well, people decide to tell the Christmas story by putting it on carts, like on wagons. And each scene has its own wagon, okay? So uh, Mary reading her book, which is always the way it's presented. Mary reading her book, the angel Gabriel is lowered down and appears with wings and tells her you're going to be, you know, the mother of God. Um, this is on one wagon. And so it would get performed and then that wagon would move on because everybody's lining the streets watching, right? So that wagon would move on to the next block where people would see that scene. And meanwhile, a new wagon shows up and this wagon is, you know, Joseph encountering an angel telling him in a dream, don't worry, Mary's pregnant, but it's all good because it's God's baby. Don't divorce her, right? Or don't throw her aside. So each scene, each major scene would have this. And these sorts of pageants were quite popular during the Middle Ages. They were called mystery plays. And they did them for things like the flood and so forth, where the local plumbers would be in charge of the water part. And, you know, like each guild would be in charge of a different aspect of the story, you know, to play on their particular uh, ability with special effects. I could see it now. Well, Noah was building all of this and God said, we wouldn't have this flood if all the leaks were fixed thanks to these plumbers over here. They're the real heroes on this one. I, I, I can see it. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, so these pageants, which were very popular, um, they start to decline as literacy starts to go up. Um, because originally, you know, St. Francis was doing it for illiterate peasants, right? Whereas once uh, people learn, start learning how to read after the printing press is invented in the late 1400s, then as literacy goes up, adults don't need these pageants to explain the Christmas story to them as much. You know, there, there is some, some crossover. But what eventually happens is that adults, particularly in Protestant countries, are encouraged to read the Bible on their own. The Bible becomes like the most likely book to find in any household among, among Protestants. But the kids who, the people who can't read are kids, right? Because of course they're young, they're not born able to read. So Christmas pageants shift from being something adults do to something kids do. And I'm not quite sure why they stop doing them as outside pageants. They start doing them as indoor pageants the way we have them, right? Where the kids get dressed up in the bathrobes and stuff like that to reenact the story. Um, but. And we keep the word pageant because it becomes synonymous with Christmas play, even though it really means a, a story on the move. And one of the things which I think is interesting about what happened in the last three years is that when we are in the midst of those really terrible lockdowns where it just wasn't safe to be at church, you'd think that that would be a reason to just stop having Christmas pageants, right? Because, you know, it's not safe to go to church. But that's not what happened. All sorts of churches continued to have Christmas pageants, and many of them decided to do them outside because that was the only place that was safe to do them, right? So they met on the church grounds, and the kids still dressed up because it was, you know, uh, it was outside. It was fairly safe COVID-wise. So ironically, Christmas pageants moved back outside, becoming actually true Christmas pageants because they were happening outside and people were moving around. Um, and other churches, like our own, we decided to do Christmas pageant videos instead where we just filmed the whole thing. And, and I was telling the kids on Sunday that, you know, they can tell their children when they grow up that they were actually part of a new phase in the evolution of Christmas pageants because they went into video form. 
And I kind of hope that next sun, next next year we'll be able to have a Christmas pageant in person. But you know, like it, I think it's a testament to how much adults, in particular, love Christmas pageants. That even when we really, really couldn't have them, we still found a way to have them. It- the number of times that I've done pageants over the past few years and like you could see the morph from being indoors and I know that it might have changed for why they were indoors versus outdoors in like southern France but at least in Canada it's not rocket science that it it's sometimes like minus 10 and you're dealing with slush and snow and ice and I'm not dealing with children trying to learn how to figure skate while also be angels. So moving inside makes sense. But in terms of the actual pageant videos, the number of times we would record them outside as well and you would have snow falling around them as they were trying to share this story. And it was really interesting seeing that connection in the community again and seeing that come together. And I I do think that we are seeing a larger conversation for churches where this is just one part of how do we continue to get people to be engaged inside buildings, outside buildings, as part of church, as part of their own communities, and remembering that not everything has always been the way it was. This is just one stage and centuries upon centuries of evolving in terms of acting, in terms of writing and reading, in terms of education, in terms of church itself, it has never been stagnant. It's always been on the move. We're just seeing something move in hyperdrive for the moment. And like, this is just one facet of that. I I do miss the Charlie Brown pageants though. I hope that we can get those back just a little bit. If we can get a variation on it, I'd be a happy camper. These are some fascinating Christmas facts, and thank you so much for sharing them with us, Steve. And I wanted to know if you had any other sort of final words that you have. I know that if anyone wants to hear your final Christmas words, you are preaching on Christmas Eve at Lawrence Park Mm -hmm. Community Church, and they can either hear you in person or online or on YouTube afterwards. But for now, for those who are listening immediately, do you have any final message or words for us all as we prepare for another busy post-COVID slash COVID Christmas? Mm. Well, I think that just, um, you know, the the fact that Chris, the Christmas story keeps getting told and retold and retold is um, a testament to its power, right? Like, you know, adults may look at it and go, that is just full of a whole bunch of things that I don't believe could practically happen. Um, and yet the story has power just the same, you know? Um, and I think that, at a time when so many people are uh, stuck at borders that they would like to cross into safety, the fact that the Christian story starts with um, people on the move who end up homeless, who then after afterwards become refugees and have to escape to another country because they're being persecuted by the government, you know, we should recognize that as much as the Christmas story is a story of joy and peace and the birth of a beautiful baby, um, this, the core part of the story is also about justice. It's also about, you know, fairness. And it starts with people being unfairly pushed around. Um, and we need to recognize that, you know, there's a justice angle to the Christmas story, which is often uh, pushed away due to um, the whole emphasis on commercial wealth and commercial uh, wealth distribution. Um, 
but really, you know, once upon a time there was an evil empire and the person who was going to show us a different way was bossed around and pushed around, but stuck around, came back and showed us a different way. You know, I mean, that's, that's the Christian story. And the Christmas spirit is not just about feeling good, it's about doing good. On that note, have a very Merry Christmas, Stephen, and we wish you all the best as we take this podcast through the Christmas season and into the new year. And a Merry Christmas to you too, and to everybody who's listening. And to all a good night. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing with us your collected knowledge on all things Christmas. You can find these particular facts, along with many of the other posts that Stephen has been sharing with us, on our social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Lawrence Park Community Church. The Rooster Crows is a production of Lawrence Park Community Church that is here in Northern Toronto. For more information about us at LPCC, including upcoming services and events, and our programming, check us out on our website at lawrenceparkchurch.ca. Until then, this is Roberta Howie signing off with Stephen Milton, wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm.